You're listening to the sermons of First Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor James Hunick, and I'd like to welcome you. I pray that this sermon will help you in your Christian faith. If you'd like to join us, you can come to First Lutheran Church at worship at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with a Bible study in between. For more information about our congregation or the Lutheran tradition, please go to www.youhaveaplace.com. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Alleluia! Christ is risen! As we continue to celebrate the joy of the Easter season, it is wonderful to have you to be able to hear about Christ and His Word. As we discuss the resurrection and the appearances of Jesus over these next few weeks, we are also going to be looking at the epistle, 1 Peter. The people who put together our lectionary have us reading passages from that for the next several weeks, so we're going to get to take a look at that. One of the reasons they, are, they do that is because of uh, 1 Peter's purpose. 1 Peter has often been described as a baptismal address. The idea is, is that 1 Peter would be the kind of thing you would read to new Christians as they have been baptized. Scholars think about it like this because it is very closely connected to just a general understanding of what the Christian life is like. Peter also makes several references throughout to baptism, with things like sprinkling, or even talking about it specifically later on uh, when he talks about Noah's Ark and the flood. Or what we will see in our passage coming up, where he talks about being uh, born again, references to baptism. And so today we're going to take a look at some of the opening passages. Now, 1 Peter is different than many of the letters that we often read in the Bible. Most of the time, we read from St. Paul's letters. And all of those are written to individuals or to individual churches. So, the letter to the Romans was written to the Romans. That is not terribly difficult. He sent a letter to the church in Rome. And the letter to the Corinthians is for the Corinthians. Tough stuff indeed. First Peter is not directed to a group of Christians locally like St. Paul's letters are. This is who he writes it to. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's a whole region of the Roman Empire surrounding what we would now call Turkey. So it's all over in that area, and it's any of the Christians. It's a little bit like writing a letter to the Christians of Texas. It's just a whole bunch of people, and not just a particular church. And so when St. Paul writes, he's often writing to people he knows about problems he knows beforehand. Peter isn't writing like this. It is much more general. In fact, we call it part of the Catholic epistles or general epistles because it is not specific to a time or place, but more generally 
to a whole group of Christians. So let's dig in. Starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is one of the reasons scholars will think of this as a baptismal address, because right away the first thing he says in the meat of his peace is that he has caused us to be born again. Now many Christians call themselves born-again Christians, and by that they often mean that they're on fire for Jesus. Born-again Christians are then described as people who are just excited. They're really super committed, as opposed to those who are not born again, who are just kind of going through the motions. But I don't think the Bible talks about it that way. Born again is a phrase that I believe points us to baptism. We can see that in places like the Gospel of John. When John records the appearance of Nicodemus going to Jesus at night, Jesus tells Nicodemus, uh, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He says, wait a second, do I have to climb into my mother's womb? And Jesus clarifies. He says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. People puzzle about that over and over again, and you go, wait a second, that's pretty easy. You're born of water and the Spirit in baptism, right? Isn't that what happened to Jesus when he went into the Jordan River? He was plunged into the water, and out he came, and the Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove, establishing the pattern for us. We are born of water and the Spirit, or as he says, born again. That is what we are, born again. And for us, baptism is not a one-time event, but a thing that changes us for our whole lives. It actually reminds me of what happens when someone becomes a U.S. citizen. I walk to church every day past a set of apartment complex. And very often, as I walk, I meet this very nice Chaldean man. And we chat and we talk. And uh, uh, one day, as we were passing, he turns to me and he says, I became a citizen today. That's pretty awesome, right? I was like, congratulations, that's such a big deal. Things have changed for him now. He's no longer here by permission. He is now here by right. Nobody can deport him. He's an American. Where would they send him? He also has duties, right? Now that he's a citizen, he has to go to jury duty, right? But something's changed. Now he is one of us, a part of our country. He's got rights and obligations and things that must happen. And it's not like you get your card and you say, well, enough of that. The rest of your life is different. You're a citizen. 
That is what happens with baptism. You are chosen by God, made a citizen of his kingdom, pulled out as an elect exile in this world. So we're no longer part of the world, we're now part of God's kingdom. This is why very often churches will put their baptismal font right out in front like this. It's an architectural reminder of this thing that baptism does for us. In many churches, what you will do is when you're coming to communion, you'll walk up past the font and get up to where there's an altar rail and everybody kneels and all of that. The idea there is that the baptismal font marks our our citizenship in the kingdom of God and allows us entry to take Christ's body and blood. And it's always our baptism that we, we remember, that we go back to, that we think about, that says, we belong here. We are part of God's kingdom. He has given us a gift. And he calls that a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the gift of baptism gives us a living hope, not by delivering to us an idea, but giving us Jesus, who is alive. That's what we celebrate this Easter season. Jesus rose from the grave, broke free from death. Death no longer has any power over him. He will never die again. And he lives and reigns still in heaven right now. Which means our hope is not an idea or a doctrine, but Jesus himself. This is why the resurrection candle, the paschal candle, stands next to our baptismal font. It reminds us that in baptism, we are connected mystically to Jesus Christ. We died with him. We rose with him. And this living hope is ours forever. Let's continue. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so, by being chosen in baptism, born again, brought into the kingdom of God, we now have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How many things do you have that are like that? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I'm willing to bet not too many. Because it has to be last forever, never get dirty or break down, be permanent, never any sin involved in it. Even the best things in our lives are not like that. I've got a, a garden that I'm working on in the backyard, trying to make it nice, and it has been so wonderful this year having rain. It's been like living in Chicago. Except... It's not just my flowers and vegetables that get the rain. It's the weeds, too, right? And, whoa, are there some weeds. 
And I get out there and I'm pulling them up and some of them are this tall and I'm yanking them out and I go around and by the time I get through the whole thing, I've got to start over again. Because the weeds are back. That's not imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's a lot of perishable, defiled, and fading. There's only one thing that is this gift. It's the eternal life that we've been given in Jesus. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And it's based on Jesus himself. His very body is the pattern for us. He who rose from the dead, that the disciples saw, his body is the pattern for ours. St. Paul in Colossians calls Jesus the firstborn of the dead. Elsewhere he calls him the first fruits, which means the same kind of body that Jesus rose with is the body that you too will rise on the day that he returns. Never to die again. This is the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance you received in baptism. We continue. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith, then, this gift that Christ has given you in baptism, is guarded by God's power itself. Here, by the Holy Spirit. This is why we gather together around the means of grace, to receive God's power given to us through His Word, through the sacraments, to continually be guarded against our sinful nature. So that when we face temptation, the Holy Spirit is here to guard us and protect us. And we certainly need it, because we are often faced by terrible trials. I've been doing a great deal of playing around with the AI stuff on the internet. You've probably heard about it, articles and things like that. I especially enjoy using ChatGPT. It's just an interesting thing to play with. And what I love about it is I like to ask it to do theology because, you know, that's my thing, right? So I go on and I ask it to do all sorts of interesting things, and sometimes it does a great job. In fact, so much so that I, I used a piece of what it did in one of the Wednesday night services. But sometimes it does a terrible job. And I want to share with you a story that it created out of whole cloth today as an example of what sometimes we do with our baptismal theology. So here's the story that it made up. It says, a few years ago, I had the privilege of baptizing a young woman named Sarah. Reminder, totally made up. 
Sarah had grown up in a broken home and had experienced a lot of pain and trauma in her life. She struggled with depression and anxiety and felt like there was no hope for her future. But one day, Sarah heard the gospel and realized there was hope for her. She put her faith in Jesus Christ and decided to be baptized as a public declaration of her faith. As Sarah went under the water and then emerged, she felt a sense of peace and joy that she had never experienced before. She knew that she was a new creation in Christ and that her past no longer defined her. She had hope for her future, knowing that she was loved and accepted by God. In the years since her baptism, Sarah's life has been transformed. She has experienced healing from her past traumas and has grown in her relationship with Jesus Christ. She now serves in her church and is a witness to others of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's kind of a nice story, isn't it? Like this made-up character named Sarah gets a baptism and then everything goes great for her. That's not what St. Peter is saying. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of what St. Peter is talking about. And Christians often tell stories like this because we want to impress people with the power of God. But it's also stories like this that convince people that the Christian church is only for people who have it together, only for people who are already strong and have their life put together. Sort of the opposite of God's grace. What St. Peter tells us is that after we're baptized and brought into the kingdom of God, we're going to face fiery trials. Life is going to be hard, and God's grace isn't going to fix everything for you. He points us back to that inheritance that is prepared for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and not to healing from trauma or fixing our problems now. He tells us we're going to have to face these difficult times. And I know that you have faced difficult times. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. God's grace hasn't fixed everything in your life. And it won't fix everything in your life. Peter tells us that these things are part of the test of our faith like gold being refined in a fire. And they help us to focus on Jesus Christ and the inheritance that he gives us. Because honestly, these trials just remind us that everything in our life is perishable, defiled, and fading. The only thing we have that lasts forever is Jesus and the resurrection that he will bring on the day that he comes. And holding fast to this promise leads to the joy and the glory and honor that he says, where may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what we cling to when we face those challenges and those trials. It continues. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
this is the thing that, that we cling to during those trials. That we have an inexpressible joy that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. You can see that in the reading from Acts, where Peter and John are before the council. You know, they do all the things, they arrest them, they almost, they want to kill them, but then they just beat them and set them free. And what does it say? They rejoiced that they were found worthy of dishonor for the name of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Not to me. But what they did is they rejoiced that they have this inheritance. Being chosen by Jesus in baptism given the gift of salvation and the promise of his return, they can rejoice even in these beatings because they know they have Jesus, just as we do. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermons. If you have any questions about anything that you've heard or anything about the Lutheran tradition, I would love to answer them. Please contact me at Pastor H U E. N-I-N-K at youhaveaplace.com.